Welcome to the Unity Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. In our episode today, Senior Pastor Heath Bauer continues in a new mini-series on spiritual gifts. The series is called Out of Many, One. In this series, we are looking at what the Bible reveals to us about these God-given gifts. Today's talk is titled, Every Member Matters. If you are in the Ashland or Tri-State area, we would love to see you. Stick around until the end and find out how you can connect with us here at Unity Baptist Church. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We introduced the idea of spiritual gifts this last Sunday. <clears throat> we spoke about speaking gifts, the equipping gifts, those visible gifts, those gifts that are obvious because you see them, people who are leading, people who are preaching, people who are teaching within a church, those speaking gifts. But this Sunday, we're going to look at the majority of the church, and we're going to look at serving gifts, those often invisible, kind of behind-the-scenes gifts. The Bible has something to say about that. 1 Corinthians 12, we're going to begin in verse 12. We're going to see, first of all, that spiritual gifts are meant to be used inside of a local church. I mean, that seems obvious, right? Because if God gave you a spiritual gift, if you remember last week, we said that spiritual gifts were div uh, divine enablement meant to help you better serve the body of Christ. Can you use a spiritual gift by yourself at home? You're not intended to. Spiritual gift isn't given to you. Remember we said it's a, it's a, it's a vacuum, right? It's the gift that you give that God gives you to be able to better serve, enable you to serve other people. And so if we're talking about spiritual gifts, we would be remiss not to talk about the importance of actually physically being around other believers so that we can exercise that gift together. He says in verse 12, for just as the body is one and has many members and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we are all baptized into one body, whether Jew or Greek, God doesn't care what nationality you are. He doesn't care about your race. He says, whether we're slave or free, God doesn't care about your socioeconomic status, whether you're, whether you're uh, big and famous in this community or whether nobody knows your name, whether or not you're rich or whether or not you're poor. <clears throat> it says, in all, we're made to drink into one spirit, for the body does not consist of one member, but of many. He's talking about in the body of Christ, he's talking about the church, that there is a singular body here. Right now, you together with me, we compose a single body, but you're multiple different body parts. He's reminding us here that as members of a body, a member just means, remember what we talked about being a member of a church means a body part. It's a fully functioning body part that has chosen to attach itself to this body. This church has a head. By the way, it's not me. It's Jesus. Jesus is the head of the body, and through his Holy Spirit linking all of us together, that's the central nervous system, and each one of us are a part in the body. Some of us are visible parts, those speaking, equipping gifts. Some of us you see, you, you hear their preaching, you hear their teaching, you see them leading, they're organizing people. And then there's those invisible parts, those serving gifts that we don't see, hearts and lungs and livers and things like that. But we're still all meant to be part of one body. So in this teaching, in the context of talking about spiritual gifts, Paul is letting us know that if, you're, if you have a gift, and by the way, you do, everybody has a spiritual gift, he says, that gift doesn't do any good if you keep it to yourself. If you don't utilize that gift, if you, if you stay away from the church, we're meant to be connected to a body. You're walking down the street, and all of a sudden, you see an arm sitting there by itself in the road. And you walk a little further, you see a foot and you see a leg. What do you think? Hey, good for you, buddy. You do your own thing. Is that what you're thinking? No, you're thinking this is a crime scene. Better call the sheriff or someone. Like, there's, there's a serious problem here. That arm isn't going to live too long severed from the body. Get it on ice and get it reattached to a body. That's your first thought. Body part gets severed. You're like, we got to get this thing reattached because not only is that body part going to die, but the person who's missing that body part, I would imagine, is probably hurting themselves. And so we've got to get them reattached. The church needs its body parts, but guess what? The body parts also need the church. And that's one of the things that's being communicated here. Now, I know in the world right now, it's very fashionable to say, well, you know what? I am spiritual, but not religious. You ever heard that? 
I'm spiritual, not religious. What are they saying? I like the idea of God, and it's really hard. I mean, it's indefensible to look at nature and say, God didn't create this. But I don't want to go to church. I don't want to go to hell, but I don't want to go to church either. And so I'm a spiritual person, but I don't see myself as religious. I'm not attached to a local church anywhere. Can I tell you, that teaching finds itself nowhere in Scripture. Nowhere. God intends for it. Right here, we're reading about it. You're a single member of what kind of body? The body of Christ, a church. We're supposed to physically gather with other believers. There's no such thing as a mature, healthy body part. Just like if you saw an arm laying on the ground, you're not thinking, that arm's doing pretty well for itself. You're thinking, that, that arm is doomed. He needs to be reattached to a body. Same thing with a believer. God doesn't see a believer out doing kind of this lone wolf Christianity by itself, thinking, well, you know what? You're strong. You're one of those few people that's strong enough. You don't need church. That believers are supposed to be connected to a local body. You know, let me ask you this too. This church, it's a group, it's a body. If, even out in the animal world, if you see a herd of animals, where's its strength? It's in the herd, right? And when, uh, when an animal gets separated from the herd, we don't look at that as a good thing. You're watching an animal documentary and one animal gets separated from the herd, you know this documentary guy is gonna start talking about how some animal's gonna wrap its lips around its neck, you know? Let me ask you this, in a church, as a believer, as soon as you become a believer in Jesus Christ, do we get a target painted on us? Is there anybody who is actively seeking to destroy us right now? I can tell you with authority on scripture, there are, okay? Uh, Satan himself, 1 Peter 5, 8 says, be sober-minded. In other words, think clearly. Don't be so naive, he's saying, so as to think that everything's gonna be just fine. He says, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around. It means that Satan is active. We're supposed to see ourselves as Christians, we're sheep. We're not rhinoceros. God didn't compare us to being lions or even wolves. Nothing strong, nothing tough. There's no football teams named the sheep. Nobody follows them because they're not strong, okay? And God wants to remind us, you need to be watchful. You need to be like these antelopes who are always like, what, did you hear something? You hear something? You know, and we're supposed to be looking around. We're supposed to be expecting attacks from Satan. He says, be watchful and sober-minded. He says, your adversary, the devil, prowls around. You see him just kind of, he's looking for you. And what's he looking for? He's looking for the one who's by himself. He says he prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. When a lion roars, why does he do that? Lions are a lot of times lazy, especially these male lions. There's no correlation to humans, by the way, but male lions are kind of lazy, and the ladies do all the work. And that male, when he roars, what's he trying to do? He's trying to strike fear in the flock, because what does he want to do? Lion can't kill a whole flock, but what can he do? He can get somebody separated, and he can kill them. And that's his goal. So the Bible says Satan is a roaring lion. He's roaring. He's trying to strike fear in the hearts of individual believers so that together in this group, you are mighty in Christ. The Bible says the gates of hell itself will not prevail against the church. But a believer by himself, Satan can devour. And so Satan roars. He does things to scare us from being a part of church, doesn't he? Have you seen it before? Somebody gets offended by somebody in church and Satan roars, ah, and so what do they do? They run off, oh, I'm not going to church anymore. I don't, I don't have to take that. He roars and he successfully got them separated. Maybe something happens at church you just don't agree with, something in a business meeting, something the pastor taught. I don't know, you just don't like it. And so you're like, I'm not going back there again. I'm just gonna go by myself. Satan roared and he successfully isolated you from the flock. Maybe you just your feelings got hurt. Somebody bumped into you. Somebody doesn't understand you. There's an ongoing conflict of some kind. And Satan roars, and you're like, I'm not going back to that church anymore. I'm not going back to any church. You see, and, and we just say, well, you know what? I've been hurt, so you understand why I don't go back to church anymore. Friends, can I tell you, if you're one of those where Satan roars and he has successfully isolated you from church, can I tell you that's exactly where he wants you today? I can also tell you with authority that where Jesus wants you to be is in the protection of the flock. You say, yeah, but sometimes amongst all these other wildebeests and they bump heads with me and I don't like that. Do you love your family? Do you ever bump heads with your, your, your wife or your husband? You ever bump heads with your kids? You don't leave your family. Friends, this is a spiritual family. We serve a father, we have brothers and sisters. We don't just walk away from family when we have issues. What do we do? We work them out. And so Satan wants us to leave the church. And if you ever watch an animal, once he gets separated from the herd, 
You know, you may feel like once you've left, a ch left church and like I'm not doing church anymore, I'm gonna be one of those spiritual, not religious people. You may feel safe initially. Hey, that's kind of nice. I can kind of do my own thing. I don't have to follow the herd when the herd goes this way. I can do my own thing. And it feels liberating maybe initially. Just like that antelope may feel initially liberated. Satan, you know, the, the lion roared rather. And he felt like the safest thing for him to do is to flee away from the herd. But it's always that one that the lions jump out of the bushes, you know, grab him by the neck, wrestle him down and eat him. And Satan wants to do the same thing with us. Don't make any mistake about it. Satan is not ambivalent, ambivalent to the fact that you're in church or not. He, the very thing he wants to do is separate you from here so that one, you can't use your gift here and make this church strong. And two, so he can devour you, he can destroy you. That's his intended goal. First Peter 5, 8 tells us so. Now in verse 12, he says, the members of the body, though many, are a single body. He's just reminding us, every member, every body part needs a body. Every churchgoer, every, every believer, they need a church. Every member needs a body. And friends, I'd just like to say is if you're at home and you're listening right now, maybe you're listening to a podcast, maybe you're watching us on live stream, can I just tell you that there's no replacement for physically gathering with other believers. And maybe you feel hurt. Maybe you feel like you feel a lot safer at home. You know, I can listen to a podcast. I can, I can sing at home. I can even give on the QR code that our sound guys provided for you to give at home. And we, we're grateful that you do this much. But can I tell you, you're still isolated from the herd. You're not physically present. Why is, be, why is being physically present important? I'll share with you. Uh, Hebrews 10, 24, 25 speaks to that very issue of the importance of being physically present with other believers. And before I read this, I want you to understand this passage here was written in roughly AD 95. We're coming up on almost 2,000 years ago. The church isn't just today struggling to get people to be physically present in church. They've been struggling with it for thousands of years because man always feels like, well, I don't wanna go where I might get hurt. Well, I don't wanna go where, somewhere when I could, be, I could be sleeping in, I could be going to the beach, I could be getting caught up on my chores at home. We've been dealing with these things for years. But here's the admonition in Hebrews 10. He says, and let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works. Pause. What he's saying is, when you come to church, we don't just come and go, well, let's see if somebody meets my needs. Let's see if somebody comes up and talks to me. You know, let's see, let's see if, the, if I like the music or not, because if I don't like it, I'm gonna say something. You know? Let's see if the, if the pastor's message, if it's what I wanted to hear, because if it's not, maybe I'll write an email. You know? And so we start thinking like the church is just there for me when I come to church. But what does he say here when we gather together? He says, we are to come with the intention to stir up one another to love and good works. In other words, we come to church with the intention of deliberately, and this may scare some of you, to deliberately interact with other believers. Sometimes Christians, we come to church and we just want to kind of hide out in the, you know, we, we slip in at the last second and we slip out during the invitation and we just kind of want to hide in church. Can I tell you, God's intention is for us to come here with the specific intent of, I want to find a believer for me to bless with my spiritual gift today. That I want to stir up somebody toward love and good works. I don't just want to be a, a pew sitter, I, I want to be involved. But look what he says then. He says, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. There's some people out there who won't meet together regularly and still call themselves a Christian. That's them, it doesn't have to be you. He says, do not neglect to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. Once again, encouraging interaction with other believers. The church isn't just a place where we upload information into you and send you out. It's a place where you individually see yourself as a member of this body, a body part, a finger, a toe, a hand, and you intend to bless other people within the church. He says, don't neglect to meet together. This word meet together here, it's a word that means uh, to have an assembly. You ever have those in school? I always loved it when they announced we were gonna have an assembly that day and I wanted to see if I could get out of math class. I loved assemblies, but what do you do during an assembly? You get everybody from all their different walks of life in the school, you know, the shop class, you know, the, the guys chewing tobacco in the back of the lunchroom, and you get these people, you know, math nerds over here, and the band kids, and you get everybody together from all different walks of life in the school, and you gather together, and everybody's happy to be there because you're skipping math, and you, get, you gather physically somewhere. Maybe it's an auditorium, maybe it's a gymnasium, and you're doing some kind of pep rally for the football team, but it's fun, it's exciting to get everybody 
everybody from all walks together, but we all sing the same song, the same fight song, and we all are wearing the same school colors. We're all on the same team. And no matter how different you are, it's exciting to gather together in a school in an assembly. This is the word that's used in Hebrews 10. Don't neglect. Don't say, eh, I'll get to it if I get to it. But he says, don't neglect the assembly of the church together. It literally means a physical gathering with other believers. You say, well, I don't need church. I don't need to physically gather with church to be church. I can stay at home and watch sermons. I can stay at home and give. I can stay at home and sing. What can't you do at home? You can't use your spiritual gift. There's nobody there for you to bless. You know, there's, there's no one for you to interact with. It's like one hand clapping. That don't work too well. You gotta have other people around you. Okay, we've got to have humans. We've got to assemble together. In my time in working out, uh, a lot of times I did bivocational work while doing ministry, and there was one time I was working out at Disney, and a lot of times those Disney worker Christians are kind of underground Christians. <laughs> Don't tell anybody. Uh, it's literally the most hostile environment I've ever worked in for Christianity, and so a lot of the Christians were secret, and so I would, I would share the gospel with somebody I thought was an unbeliever, and they were like, actually, I'm a believer, you know. <laughs> really, okay. Uh, and then I'd ask them, and my first question is always, well, where do you go to church? My natural assumption is, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're looking to gather with other believers. He says, I'll tell you what my church is, and he kind of had this funny smug look on his face. He says, Heath, my church is the outdoors, he says, every Sunday I get out there in my canoe and I just kind of paddle along and I just sit there and, and I just soak up the sun's rays and I look at the trees and take a deep breath of the fresh air. And he says, Heath, that's my church. I feel closer to God in nature than I do in any church. Now, initially to some people that may sound good. What's wrong with that statement? You're assuming the church is just about you. Who are you stirring up to love and good works at that point? Out there paddling on the water, who are you blessing with your spiritual gift? Who's preaching messages to you? With whom are you worshiping together? How are you giving and contributing to the body? Friends, church isn't just about us. Church is about Jesus and church is about other people. To love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. That's why we do church. That's why we physically assemble together. And the Bible says very clearly we don't neglect that. God has made us to operate together as a colony, as a group of people. We're like a bee. You know, a beehive or bee colony. Bees, by the way, in a, in a hive can live up to, I think, about 70 days, which, granted, for us isn't that long, but it's about as long as a bee that has. Do you know that a bee, if you separate him from the colony, how long he lives? Under a week. You still give him free access to all the outdoors that he had before, but he dies within the week. Because a bee is meant to serve with a, a purpose within the colony, and they bless him, and he blesses them. You know, if you get a bee trapped in your house, I know we're always terrified that they're gonna murder us in our sleep, but a bee trapped in your house, he's only got, let me tell you this, even if he started out with a full tank of gas, okay, he only has 40 minutes of flight time before he completely runs out and he's gonna starve and die. 40 minutes of flight time. A bee within the hive lives 70 days. A bee, apart from that, the very best he has to hope for, even with a food source, is under a week. God created him to serve. God created him to be blessed and built up within the hive. It's the same thing with the church. A believer within a church will burn hot and will burn strong and will bless other people. A believer out by himself, friends, they cool off very fast and they die out. I want you to see here, number two, that no gift is less important than another. Verse 15 says, if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body. He says, that would not make it a less part of a body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body. But he says, that would not make it any less a part of the body. Sometimes in the body of Christ, we can feel like our spiritual gifts are either more important than they are, or sometimes we can feel like I'm less important than I am. God wants us to know that every member matters. Every member of the body of Christ is important. You know, it, it means that men aren't more important than women. It means that deacons aren't more important than you know, somebody who works in the nursery. It means a pastor isn't more important than somebody out here who's teaching Sunday school. We all have equal value before God. Every member matters. I mean, think about your own body. Let's say that somebody came to you and they said, uh, you've gotta get rid of a body part. What are you cutting off? You're gonna cut off your ears and you know, get rid of your hearing? You're gonna pull your eyes out so you can't see and you're just stumbling around everywhere. You're gonna get rid of your arms, you know? 
makes it really hard to play volleyball unless you're really good with your head, okay? It's, it's hard. You are gonna get rid of any body parts. You think, well, maybe I'll get rid of one of these invisible parts. How about a kidney? Let's get rid of my kidneys. Those are little. We don't need kidneys, right? What happens? Your blood turns to poison. So even those parts that we don't see and we don't think about and are little are still absolutely vital to your body. You don't wanna lose any of your members of your body. How is it in a church? Well, this guy or this guy or this woman or this, this fellow, we don't need them, don't we? There's not a single job or role within this church that doesn't have tremendous importance. Foot cannot say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body. You see, what we see here is comparison, foot and hand. You know, I, man, I wish I was a hand. I'm, I'm just this foot over here. What he's reminding us here is, uh, that we shouldn't have spiritual gift jealousy. Is that a real thing? Oh, buddy, it's real. I mean, in just another couple of chapters here, Paul's gonna talk to the Corinthians who all wanted the gift of tongues. Oh, buddy, we all gotta be, we all gotta have tongues. We all want tongues. We all have, want this very visible outward gift so that we can feel spiritual. And so they're gonna struggle with spiritual gift jealousy. I wanna serve like that guy. I wanna be like this woman. Spiritual gift jealousy. Paul speaks to that. Verse 17, he says, if the whole body were an eye, boy, wouldn't that be an odd project? Your kid sculpts a human in art class. He just puts eyeballs all over the thing. It's, it's creepy. It's a freak of nature. He says, if the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? And if the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members of the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts in yet one body. And so God is saying here, what is he saying about spiritual gifts? I think one of the most important takeaways from this particular verse is to understand that God says, God arranged the members of the body. It says each one of them, every single body part, every single believer, God has arranged them as he chose. In other words, God has, and I don't know we don't like to hear this, but God is saying here that he has chosen what gift you have. You didn't get to pick your spiritual gift. God simply empowered you. And God has, according to this passage here, God has led you to this church. And God has your spiritual gift at this church for what reason do you suppose? It's because this church needs you. You're here because this church needs you. I don't care how young you are, I don't care if you're a front row person or if you're a back row person, you have a spiritual gift and God has you here at this church for some reason. It's because he wants your gift here. You're here because we need you. Every single member matters. And if you're not a functioning part of the body, you're, the church is losing out. And you're losing out on the joy and the privilege of serving God. There is no lesser part. And we don't wanna be jealous of other spiritual gifts. We don't wanna look at others and go, well, I'm not useful, so I'm not that important because I'm not this guy. You know, if you're a foot, you don't wanna look at the hand and say, I wish I was a hand. Boy, that hand sure looks like he's having a good time. You know, the head, he, he lifts up that cup of coffee to his lips and he sure seems to enjoy that so much. I wish as a foot that I could do that. I think I'm going to try that one morning and I'm gonna reach up and pick up that coffee cup and bring it to the master's lips because I wanna be like him. How's that gonna turn out? You're gonna get a lap full of hot coffee. Or likewise, you ever wanna run the 50-yard dash on your hands? Wish I was a foot, you know? That's not gonna turn out well. We, we want to be the person that God made us to be. We don't want to long to be someone else. We find joy in what God created us to be. Now, there were some arrogant people in Corinth who tried to demean and belittle people because of their spiritual gift. Evidently, Paul was speaking against that. He says, the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. He says, nor again of the head to the feet, I have no need of you. I don't need you. You're not as important as me. Or worse yet, I don't even need to be a part of a church. I don't need the rest of you guys here. I'm good enough by myself. You can't say that I don't need other body parts. When we have body parts missing on us, we call that handicapped. They're disabled. They're struggling. And I think there's a lot of disabled churches out there because there's people out there who are a body part that aren't functioning. I mean, you maybe you have one leg, but you don't have two. And the church is just kind of hopping around doing its thing. It's not effective or efficient because we have members who aren't active. They're, they're a body part, but they're not serving. 
So he says, we can't say, I don't need you. We don't big time people and say, because you're less of a person because you're young. In fact, Bible specifically says, don't let anybody look down on you because you're young, but rather be an example to the believers. So don't let anybody in this church tell you, oh, you're young, you can't serve. You're young, we don't need you. We need you. At the same time, those who are young, we don't look at the old and say, you guys are done and washed up. We don't need you. We don't have men looking at women saying, well, if only you were a man, you could be as good and important as I am. We don't say that because in Christ, the Bible says, there is no male or female distinction. We're all equal standing before the cross. And so we don't divide up. We need one another. I worked with a fellow one time, and uh, once again, this time I was installing fire alarms, and I asked him, I was sharing the gospel with him, and, and come to find out, he was a believer. Uh, didn't act like it, but he was, said he was. And I said, well, really, where do you go to church? Well, I don't go to church. So why don't you go to church? Well, the church, he says, well, you don't understand. The church is for the, those whose faith is weak. My faith is strong. I said, your faith is strong, and that's why you don't go to church? Oh, yeah, I don't need church. He's, it's, he's the hand saying to the foot, I have no need of you. I said, buddy, if your faith is that strong, wouldn't you be better used in a church helping those whose faith is weak? Now, it it wasn't enough to convince him to go to church, but you could see the fallacy of that argument. Now, in verse 22, uh, Paul's going to say, on the contrary, he says, on the parts of the body that seem to be weaker, they're not, they're indispensable. On those parts of the body that we think are less honorable, he says, we bestow greater honor and our unpresentable parts, those parts we don't see, he says, we treat with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts don't require. So those of you with visible equipping gifts, do we use those gifts to try to draw attention to ourselves and to glorify ourselves? No. People already know who you are and what you do. You try to encourage and help and strengthen and build up those invisible parts. He says, there are some parts in the church that may seem weaker, but they're not. He says, we, he says they're indispensable to the body. That there's some body parts, there's some jobs that people do here in this church that nobody sees, nobody knows about. They don't end up on some highlight reel. They don't end up in the bulletin, but God knows your name. Are those parts still important? Absolutely vital. He says they are indispensable. The church can't live without you people. It's like the spleen. What can you tell me about the spleen? You don't even like the word spleen, do you? It's kind of a gross name. Spleen, can you tell me where it is in your body? If those of you who aren't nurses, okay, uh, can you tell me where it is in your body and what it does? Most of us were like, eh, don't really care enough about the spleen to know anything about it. I'm just happy that whatever it does, it functions. Okay, spleen, by the way, it's in the upper left part of your abdomen near your stomach. What does it do? It helps fight off germs and things in the bloodstream. You get a ruptured spleen, you're gonna be concerned about your spleen at that point. But it's this part of the body that's it's invisible and it seems maybe a little bit unnecessary, but it's indispensable. You, you wanna keep your spleen. Servants are important to God, just like the spleen. I'm gonna tell you about a guy in the Bible who's essentially the spleen of the Bible. You don't know his name, you don't know where he's from, you don't know what he did. But here's an interesting trivia question. In the Bible, who is the very first person that, the, that God says is filled with the Spirit of God? You might think, oh, maybe it's Abraham, maybe it's Moses, one of these big famous orators of the Bible. It's not. You might be surprised who the very first person in the Bible that God describes as being filled with the Spirit is. Did you know it's a blue collar fellow? A guy with calloused daddy hands, you know? They're so calloused up that when he washes his hands, they still look dirty. You ever have a dad like that? Mine was that way. And he's a blue collar fellow, and his name was Bezalel. And you're like, I don't know anything about this fellow. It's all right, most people don't. But I want you to hear what God says about him in Exodus 31. The Lord said to Moses, see, I have called by name Bezalel. Okay, by the way, those of you who do service activities, you're just as called by God to do your service. He says, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, the tribe of Judah, he says, and I have filled him with the spirit of God, with ability and intelligence and knowledge and craftsmanship and artistic designs to work with gold and silver and bronze and cutting stones for setting in carving wood and to work in every craft. 
say this guy doesn't even say anything about him being a teacher or some great leader. He's no judge. He didn't do miraculous things. And yet he's the first man in the Bible that God describes as being filled with the spirit of God. And so he, as he molded bronze for the altar, he was filled with the spirit of God. As he's cutting wood, he's filled with the spirit of God. As he's cleaning up the job site, he's filled with the spirit of God. This, as he's cutting gems, by the way, this particular guy, he built the Ark of the Covenant. You remember that gold box in Indiana Jones that if you open it up, everybody's face melts? That, that box there? Bezalel made that box. Bezalel built the tabernacle. The tabernacle is a portable temple, right? They used it when they were traveling around from when God led them out of Egypt before they went into the promised land. Bezalel was the man that God tapped to go ahead and build that. And God says, this person who does these invisible things behind the scenes that nobody sees or knows about, and none of you, even Christians, even though it's in your Bible, have probably even heard of this guy. Nevertheless, he's the first guy I'm going to describe as being filled with the Spirit of God. And friends, I want you to hear this today. You may not be a teacher. You may not be a preacher. You may not be a leader. You may not be a deacon. But can I tell you, you can be filled with the Spirit of God in doing these unseen activities that no one notices. You guys that assemble the big Christmas tree every year for Christmas, you guys who welded it together, you guys who planned it out, you guys you know, who get out the chainsaws and you're out there cutting down trees and you're scooping mud with disaster relief, you people who clean the church, you, you, you ladies and guys and stuff, you come in and you organize the church and you throw out trash and you pick things up. When the church flooded this last week, or a week or so ago, How'd all this stuff get cleaned up? We have magic elves here in church, we really do. They're here, they're the same ones that are in your home, your kids that are mystified that they wear these dirty clothes, they're on the floor and somehow they magically arrive in your, you know, in your dresser, completely cleaned and folded and put away. Don't, no child knows how that happens because that's why they don't do it. In the church, we've got you same people, you folks who are doing these unseen activities, you're sweeping, you're cleaning, you're vacuuming, you're mowing. You're stacking chairs, you're moving tables, you're working in the kitchen, you're washing dishes. These activities, if we're not careful, we can minimize how important those things are. But this is the very type of blue collar activity that God first described as being filled with the Spirit of God. And so are you when you do these things with the right motive and the right intent and for the Lord's glory. You are important. Every member matters. I want you to see just a couple examples of serving gifts here. Uh, so number three, examples of serving gifts. The first one is pretty obvious. It's called service, okay? Uh, you saw that one coming. Romans 12, seven, it says, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. In other words, every one of you have a spiritual gift and no, you're not all the same. And by the way, let me just add this too. Most believers, we have sort of a, a combination of different gifts that of differing strengths that puts together a very unique profile for every believer. It uniquely gifts you for certain types of service that you will do better than other people. He says, if you, since you have these gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, he says, let us use them. Don't, ta- don't be a believer who has a spiritual gift but doesn't use it. Don't be a believer who's off by himself and kind of a lone wolf believer. Don't be a believer who's just kind of hanging out in church but never using your spiritual gift. All of us do something. He says, if God has given to you this gift, use them. He says, if in service, in our serving. In other words, if you have the gift of service, use it. Be fulfilled in the, in the usage of that gift. Now service, what it, what it really means when we talk about serving, serving is the Greek word diakonia. What does that sound like to you? Deacon, okay? It's the same kind of word here. And deacons are those who in the church, they were brought forth to take care of physical needs of the church and to take care of the people. And so at that particular time, they were taking food to widows who were on the role of the church, making sure the needs of the church are taken care of. And so those with the gift of service wanna take care of whatever physical needs there are. They wanna clean things, they wanna mow things, they wanna organize things, they want to arrange things, they decorate the church, they do these physical things. And God says it's important. Similar to service is the gift of helps. I'll show you how they differ. 1 Corinthians 12, 28 says, and God appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers. And by the way, this 
arranging of first, second, third doesn't mean importance. It just means that when God started churches, it first began with somebody who was a sent out one who did this, and then we brought in teaching, and, and then along the way, it's sort of like Normandy. We didn't, we, you know, with the, with the Germans on the beach there with their, with their machine guns, we didn't just throw a bunch of engineers out there, start building a building, you know? Who do we send out first? First, we send out the soldiers, and they create a beachhead a safe place, and then we bring in the engineers, and then they start building things. That's what he's talking about here. It's not that they're more important. He says, but then we have the gifts of miracles and healings, and then he says, helping, okay? This is, this is the gift of helps. It's similar to service because you're still serving, but it literally means, it's from a Greek word that means to take someone by the hand. A servant is meeting the physical needs of the church at large. A person with a gift of helps likes to go to individuals and take care of those needs. So in a church, let's say you have someone who has a gift of service, it might be a lab tech, it might be a radiologist, uh, someone who's kind of just taking care of the needs of the hospital, who are the people with the gift of helps there? Nurses, okay? Uh, maybe it's your physical therapist or something like that. The other guys are taking care of just, these are kind of hospital needs that, you know, we're custodian or whatever. But a person with the gift of helps is motivated to help individual people. And so these are the kind of people who, when you're sick, they're the first one to go, hello, can I bring you a meal? They're when you're sick and you can't really, you're not doing well, you're too busy. They're out, they're mowing your grass, they're cleaning things, they're chopping down trees. They're doing whatever they can to help you. Hey, do you need clothes? We'll bring you clothes. Are you working on your house? I'll help you work on your house. And so this is what the person with the gift of helps is. They like to meet the needs of individual people within the church itself. Then we have the gift of giving. You say, hang on, aren't we all supposed to be giving? Is it only just a few people with the gift of giving that give within a church? No. You may not have the gift of teaching, but who do you teach? Your kids? You may not have the gift of service, but you know, when there's tables that need to be picked up, we, we all pitch in and we work together, don't we? So, but a person with a gift of giving is somebody who doesn't just give out of a sense of, this is what a believer's supposed to do and, and I, wanna, I wanna give. This is a person who finds a unique, exquisite joy in meeting the needs within the church. There's something that arises. You give above and beyond. We have a project that we're doing. Hey guys, we want to get this done as a church. And the people with the gift of giving are like, I bet you I could help out with that. And they're looking for ways to use their money in a creative, godly way to build up the body of Christ. That's the gift of giving. Romans 12, six through eight says, once again, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. And then he talks about the one who contributes, the one who gives. And then he tells them, when you give, give with generosity. Now this, in the English, it looks like well, the person with the gift of giving, what's their admonition? Give a whole bunch. Can I tell you that's not what he's saying there. That word generosity there is actually talking about, it, it's, it's the Greek word haplotes, which just means one. That when you give, you're to give with, it says, a singleness of heart. That there's no double motive to your giving. I don't give because of what I get out from it. I give just simply to the Lord. I give with a joyful spirit because I want to bless God. I want to bless his church. I want to see that need met. He says, but when you give, he says, be careful that you give with a single motive. Is it possible for a person to use their money with a, with a double motive? It's possible. It can even happen in the church where if something doesn't go right in the church, we don't like something, it's the last check they get from me. You know, and we use our money as a leverage tool. Or fine, I'll give you half of what I've been given. You know, and we can be, we can be not single of mind, we can be double-minded. We, we have motive, ulterior motives to our giving. I was in a church once where, uh, fortunately I wasn't the senior pastor at that time, but he had done something that the church didn't like. And uh, there was a, one of the guys who happened to be a millionaire left. And another guy comes into the pastor's office, says, pastor, I gotta talk to you about something that I don't like. And then in the end, he basically told the pastor this. He says, you've already lost one millionaire. Are you ready to lose another? Was his giving haplotes? Was it single-hearted, just giving as unto the Lord? No, his giving at that point became a manipulation tool. The Bible says, if you have the gift of giving, simply give as unto the Lord. You're not giving going, well, I'll only give if I can control what happens. We're not called to control everything that happens in church. 
God is to control, and we trust the people that God has put into these places, whether they're in a building and grounds area or if they're you know, our finance committee, and we have a measure of trust that we place in these people, and we trust that God is leading these people. If they sin with it, that's their business, but I'm trusting God. I'm gonna be, be obedient for the part that I do. I think this is a reminder as we look here uh, that sometimes spiritual, with spiritual gifts, we've gotta be careful because if we're, not, if we're walking in the flesh and not in the spirit of God, we're not walking with God, our spiritual gifts can go rancid. They can go sour. And I've seen it over the years. We can become the opposite of whatever our spiritual gifting is. So for instance, you have a guy with a gift of encouragement. If he's not walking with the Lord, can I tell you, that guy can become the most critical person you have ever met because they're walking in the flesh. They take something that they normally do and they become a caricature of the other side. Person with the gift of giving, and they will seal it up, not getting another dime from me. They're not walking with the Lord. You get somebody who has the gift of teaching, who normally loves spending time in the Word. They love explaining it. They don't want to study anymore. They're just kind of half-hearted, showing up to church, not really preparing, because they're not walking with the Lord. Someone with the gift of mercy. Normally they wanna give out to people, but now all of a sudden they become very uncaring about the hurts of the people around them. We've gotta be careful if we're walking in the flesh that we don't become a caricature of the opposite of our gifting. And by the way, before I move off away from giving, let me say this, you don't have to have a lot of money to have the gift of giving. A lot of times gift of giving, you're like, oh, I know who those are. Those are all the wealthy people of the church. Sometimes. I mean, to whom much is given, much is required. But do you have to be wealthy to have the gift of giving? to find joy in giving what you do have. Remember the Pharisees, they would always, Jesus talks about uh, Matthew 6, he would always talk about how they're sounding the trumpet. By the way, I am giving, you know. And they're the kind of guys that they'd get like 15 rolls of pennies, you know, <laughs> empty them in a bucket. And, That's right, it's still going, folks. Look at my giving. And then all of a sudden you get this little old lady and she's just got her two mites and she drops them in, nobody even notices and she walks away, and Jesus decides to comment on it, which, by the way, indicates to us, does Jesus see what we give? He saw the Pharisees' Pharisaic giving. He also saw this little widow who gave what she had, and Jesus sees, whether you give a little or you give a lot, Jesus sees, and he says, and we wanna do that, do that as unto the Lord, he says, because the Father who sees you give in secret will reward you openly. But Jesus speaks in Luke 21, uh, verse three. He talks about that widow. He says, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. How is that? He says, for they contributed out of their abundance. They have a ton of money. They spend it on their needs. They spend it on their wants. They, they got their 401k. They're completely set up and they look and see what's left over at the end and they kind of flip God a tip. Bing, that's for you, Lord. They gave out of their abundance. It didn't hurt them. They didn't have to think about it. There was no faith involved. Eh. I'll just give whatever I can. But he says of this woman, he says, she gave out of her poverty. She put in all that she had to live on. And Jesus saw that and took note. You don't have to be a wealthy person to have the gift of giving. You just have to exercise it and trust God that he'll take care of you. Last gift we're gonna look at briefly just as an example, because again, there is no one comprehensive list of spiritual gifts in the Bible. Mercy, Romans 12, six or eight says, once again, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let them use them. The one who does acts of mercy, do them with cheerfulness. And so we're talking about merciful people. We're all supposed to be merciful. We're supposed to be moved by the pains of others, but some people are uniquely gifted here. The gift of mercy essentially boils down to the word compassion. It means that when you're hurting, I feel your hurts. You know, the Bible tells us that we're to Rejoice with those who rejoice, but it also says we're to weep with those who weep. A person with the gift of mercy, they, we all notice pain and we can feel their pain, but a person with the gift of mercy is acutely aware of how everybody in the church is suffering and it motivates and it moves them. And someone with the gift of mercy, they tend to also have the gift of helps. This is one of those gifts that tends to go along with it. And they, they are motivated to come alongside that person to do whatever they can to encourage them, to lift them up, to meet their needs. They have compassion. They don't just see someone hurting and go, wow, phew, thank you, Lord, that I am not as this man. They're like, God, I, would you help this one? This person over here is hurting so bad. You see their heart, Lord. And, and so that merciful heart motivates them to take action. 
It's just like Jesus in Matthew 9:36 says, when Jesus saw the crowds, what do you have? Compassion on them, because he saw them as harassed and helpless like a sheep without a shepherd. Merciful people even have mercy for people who don't deserve it. Remember when Jesus, he looked at Jerusalem, he says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who stone the prophets, I send people to help you and you kill them with rocks. You who stone the prophets, how I would have gathered you as a mother hen does her chicks, but you would not, you were unwilling. Person with the gift of mercy, they see past the person's sin. They see past the person's mistakes. All they see is the need that needs to be met. And they wanna be a part of that. He reminds them, make sure that if you have that gift, you do it cheerfully. It's possible to have to notice the pains of others and no longer feel cheerful about meeting those needs. You can start to get jaded and say, oh, another suffering person. This world is not lacking people who are hurting and suffering. You know you got yourself into that mess, right? You know, I'm a single mom and I'm paying all my bills. What, you can't pay your bills? You both have jobs? You know, you can get a little bit jaded. He's warning those with the gift of mercy that don't get so overwhelmed by the needs of the world because let me just tell you, we can't meet all the needs of the world as a church. We have limitations and you as an individual have limitations and I feel those acutely as a pastor because I wish I could be at every hospital visit. I wish I could be at every birthday party, every whatever activity, every Sunday school outing, every, every everything that's going on. I wish I could meet with every widow three times a month, and I wish I could meet with every shut-in several times. I can't do it all. Even if that's all I did, I can't do it all, and it's overwhelming to me, and it, oh, I can feel frustrated sometimes that I can't get to everything. By the way, I'm not intended to. I'm a single person. How does God meet the needs of everybody? It's through everybody. It's through your Sunday school, it's through you, it's through the church, it's, we all work together. We're that beehive working together. So back to 1 Corinthians 12, and we'll end with this thought here. He says, there's an occupational hazard to the exercise of our gifts. He says uh, in verse 29, are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles? And he just keeps asking questions, are we all these things? It's an implied negative, of course we're not all. We don't all serve the same way, and that's okay. We're not all meant to serve in the same way. If we're not careful, we, we, we get what's called Martha syndrome. You remember Mary and Martha, Jesus comes to their house, and uh, they start showing hospitality, and Martha, she's going around, and she's, and she's making dinner, she's getting appetizers together, whatever she does, but then Mary goes and sits at the feet of Jesus, and she's asking questions and things, and Martha gets a little bit put off by that. Jesus, tell her to come help me. Clearly, she's not walking with the Lord because she's not doing what I'm doing. And in the exercise of our spiritual gifts, sometimes we can look and go, why am I the only one that ever picks up chairs? Does nobody else know how to pick up chairs around here? <laughs> and we can get Martha syndrome, where we start thinking, because I do a spiritual gift, everybody should be, and if you're not, there's something wrong with you. Why am I always the one that has to teach this class? I've been teaching this class for 13 years. And we can get that Martha syndrome where we have the idea that everybody is supposed to have the gifting that I do. Is it possible that while you're doing dishes in the kitchen, you're thinking, it's only me and this other lady that do the dishes every single time we have a church activity. I can't believe we're the only one that does these dishes. Is it possible that some of these people are still exercising their gift? Although they're just over there talking. Maybe in their talking, are they showing mercy? Are they showing encouragement? They might even be counseling, showing some kind of instruction. They're utilizing their gifts. The key is not that we all do the same things equally. It's that we all perform in different ways and the Bible says that's okay. We're not all the same spiritual gift. But the key is that we all do something. And that's what's essential because if we don't, we're miserable. And I'll close with this illustration here. You ever seen the TV show, I don't know if it's even still on anymore, called The Dog Whisperer? Some fella who goes around and whispers to puppies and somehow is able to psychologically diagnose all of their issues. Well, this guy, Cesar Milan, he, from what I understand, he travels around the country. People call up, hey, I got this dog, and he's, we're, we're almost done with him. We want to keep him, but we need help. Because, you know, and usually the dog, he's like tearing up the couch and he's biting people and he's not getting along. And, and pretty soon the family, they can tolerate it for a while, but eventually they want to dump Fluffy because they're just like, I can't handle him anymore. Well, there was one episode, and I wasn't an avid watcher of this. My daughters were, and so I kind of caught this one on the rebound. 
And Caesar goes into this house and he sees this dog and he's tearing things up and he's like snapping at people and he's not very fun, he's not very friendly, he's certainly not obedient. And the family doesn't know what to do. And evidently somehow he ended up whispering to the dog, okay? So he figures out that this dog is depressed. However you diagnose that, this dog was in full depression. And so he's acting out of his depression and he, he starts analyzing the dog saying, you know what? This dog is bred to work. I don't know, he might have been some kind of sled dog or something. So you know what his solution was? He, he fashioned some kind of backpack for this dog, which you can get at the low, low price of $54.99 on Amazon. It's uh, this backpack. And you, he straps it onto this puppy, and the family, they're putting dog dishes and like bottles of water and things like that, and they made the dog carry a load. And somehow <laughs> that pulled this dog out of the depths of despair and depression. And this dog became a much happier, uh, got along better with people, stopped destroying things, all because he's carrying the load that as a dog he feels he knows innately I'm meant to carry. It reminds me of Galatians 6 we talked about last week. It says, every man shall carry his own portion, his own load, that every believer is meant to do something. And when we don't, we can kind of become like that little dog Caesar was whispering to. And we can become irritable, we can become destructive, we can become frustrated. Frankly, we can feel depressed because we were, as believers, every one of us meant to pull a load, some portion, some small, some large. But all of us are meant to carry a load. And that's the reminder here, is that in the church, no matter who you are, young or old, male, female, a lot of time, little time, retired, working two jobs, Bible still says that there's a portion. There's something that God wants us to do. When we're doing it, we're fulfilled. When we're not doing it, it's gonna to lead to spiritual anxiety, possibly even depression. And so this is just a reminder here, friends, that as we exercise spiritual gifts, we do it all together because every single member matters. What God made you is clearly what unity needs right now, and that's why you're here. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you today that as we study these spiritual gifts, these serving gifts, God, I wanna thank you for these servants these people who give of themselves and they give without expecting to be noticed and they serve without expecting to be seen. They are not doing it for the applause of men and yet they still faithfully week after week just take care of these issues that come up and they find joy and satisfaction. God, I pray that you would help them to understand how significant they are in your eyes, that you see their giving in secret. You see their service in secret and you reward them. Help them to see that like Bezalel, they can be called to this, that they can be filled with the Spirit of God, that you take great joy in the service that they do, even though no other human may be aware that you're doing it. Help them to find joy and, and uh, significance and satisfaction in knowing they're doing their part. And I pray, God, that as a church, every one of us would do our part, whether big or small, because every member matters. I ask all this in Christ's name. From all of us here at Unity, we would like to thank you for spending time with us today. If you would like to know how to surrender your life to Christ, click on the link in the show notes, and we would love the opportunity to help you in your next steps. If you've enjoyed today's talk, remember to like, subscribe, and share our podcast. As promised, if you would like more information about Unity, you can connect with us at unitybaptistashland.com or on Facebook at UBC Ashland.